good morning, Village Church. Good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. I want to ask you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Luke, chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. I'll have um, most of the scriptures on the screen, but there'll be a handful that are not. Luke, chapter 2, verse 8 says this. In the same region, there were shepherds. And they were out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And this singular verse does not land on the majority of us in this room the same way it would have landed on a first century Jew. So for most of us, your view of the shepherds, it's a caricature that's been developed for us by one, cartoons, and two, figurines. And so for most people, I'm going to take a guess. If, if, if I were to ask you, describe for me what the shepherds were like, probably many people would say quiet, meek, kind, anticipating the coming of God. Like if, if God was going to reveal himself to these kind of people, they must have been like Mary, somewhat godly, at least generally good people. And, and that is not, by the way, how any of the first century Jews would have processed this singular verse. They probably would have said, really? Shepherds of all the people in the world? He's going to show himself to these scoundrels? So they would have been described, uh, they had a reputation that, was, that would be described probably in three words. Number one would be rugged. So they're going to be strong, outdoorsy, I'm convinced very hairy men, personally. Fearless, able to ward off dangerous predators. They lived by themselves. They lived out in the open. They slept under the stars, probably listened to country music. Just saying, I'm going to go with that. Prove me wrong, burdens on you. Second, the first century Jewish shepherds would have been described as untrustworthy. Typically, they were known or at least had the reputation to be crooks, thieves, tale tellers. In fact, they were so culturally distrusted that under Jewish law, they were not allowed to be in a courtroom to give testimony because who would ever trust a shepherd? Nobody. Third, first century Jewish shepherds would have been described as ceremonially unclean. So because of the nature of their job, they were in perpetual violation of Old Testament law, and they were not allowed to worship in the temple. Shepherding, it's, it's not the job you grew up and say, one day I want to be a shepherd. It's the job probably after a few hard turns that you end up with. And the shepherds were most likely not the most spiritual they were not the most respected. They were not the most refined. And what I find hilarious is that these are the people, the first people that God decides to tell that the Messiah, that everybody's been waiting for, by the way, for a very long time, that these are the first people that he is going to tell. I don't know about you, but if it was like, I don't know, a long time waiting for the messianic fulfillment of promise, like, would, you, would this be the group of people you'd choose? Probably not. And I think, I find, a lot of Americans are very similar to the shepherds, or at least perceive themselves to be. Maybe you had some sort of spiritual upbringing, but really, day to day, there's not a lot of devotion to it in any way. You're probably, maybe, many Americans, they're pretty uncomfortable in church. Like, if you go to your neighbors and say, do you wanna come with me to church? 
they're a little bit scared. They're like, uh, they have a caricature also of what church people look like, and it's probably from The Simpsons or Seventh Heaven or something of the sorts. And, and so like their view of what it's gonna be like when they walk in here, they're probably pretty apprehensive. They're not gonna feel accepted and welcomed very easily. Um, most Americans uh, find themselves to not really be that respected at home, at work, with their neighbors, they find themselves honestly pretty similar to these people. In fact, um, what you find is that, and this is just not uncommon as we get underneath people's stories, sometimes when people come to church for the first time, they are just hoping that nobody figures out how unspiritual they really are. In fact, there's probably a handful of you in this room that you're like, I really actually hope nobody ever finds out the truth about me. There are people walk in the room and, and they drink way too much. They're on way too many medications. They yell at their spouse and their kids constantly. They are depressed. They are filled with anxiety and they're putting a smile on their face and you say, how are you? And they say, we're really great. Don't go deeper because I don't want you to know. By the way, welcome to the new average post-COVID suburban parent. So let's just pull back. Let's consider for a moment the kind of people in the Christmas narratives, in the birth narratives, that God is revealing himself to. Number one, Mary, a young, adolescent, pregnant, out of wedlock girl in hiding. Number two, kings from the east, pagan, law-breaking, under Old Testament law, they should have been stoned. Pagan, law-breaking, people from a different religion probably altogether from the east. Shepherds, rebels, who drink and cuss a lot. That's my at least vision of them in my head. So what, what message is this even sending to the masses? Because what God is doing is he's communicating by the very people that he's revealing himself to. And I'll just give you a few one-on-ones off the top of my head that he doesn't care about man-made social statuses, that you may not have all the social status, but you are able to come to Jesus no matter who you are. He is for everybody. You might be the lowest in your social caste system. You might be the most rejected. You might be the most unspiritual. You might drink too much. You might be on way too many medications. You might do drugs regularly. And Jesus is looking at you and saying, you are welcome to come to me and I will transform your life. There is no one too deep, dark, and gone or socially outcast to come to me and to be forgiven, healed, and cleansed. There is no person that he won't accept. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to redeem and forgive anybody, and his patience is long enough that he will work with you and transform you more and more into the image of Christ, no matter how far gone you are. I mean, the message that he's sending via just telling the shepherds is huge. And I hope no matter who you are and where you come from, that you remember today, Jesus is for you. No matter what you come to him with, no matter the darkness, the past, or the present, no matter the things that you have committed to do in the near future that you know are evil and against him, he still outstretches his arm and says to you, I can deal with you. We can work through this. My blood and my heart are strong enough to redeem you and to transform you. Look at, verse, look at verse nine and see what happens to the shepherds. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, an angel of the Lord, I'm sorry, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Literally, this is phobon mega, which means mega fear. 
So this isn't just normal fear. This is petrified. This is the most scared they have ever been in their life. And my question is, why mega fear? There are two things compounding here, and I, I have personally found this to be one of the most helpful parts of this text and all of the Christmas sermons I've ever done, personally. Number one, an unveiled angel. So most of the angels that communicate or talk with humans in Scripture they are either, one, veiled, meaning you don't see them in all their glory. They manifest themselves as actual people. So you meet them and you think it's a person, but it's actually an angel. The second way they do this is they show themselves in a dream or a vision. But when an angel is unveiled and shows themselves in front of a human, they have a few reactions. Always mega fear, trembling Sometimes they just pass out. Uh, I want to I show you a couple of scriptures. One is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 2 to 4. And this is awesome. This is at the resurrection of Jesus. And there are guards at the tomb trying to make sure that nobody gets the body of Jesus. And it says, there was a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and he rolled back the stone and he sat on it, which I just think is my favorite part of that verse. But his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Translation, they're out cold. Verse 5 goes forward a little bit in time, and now we have Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. And it says this, but the angel sitting on the rock, passed out soldiers, says to the women, and they're thinking, are you going to kill us? Are they dead? What's going on? Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. Acts chapter 27, verses 23 and 24, an angel appears before Paul. First words out of his mouth, don't be afraid. Why? Because if you saw an angel in their glory, you would tremble, you would wonder, are they here to harm you? And then you might even likely pass out. There's actually two um, instances in the book of Revelation where something I think really weird happens. The first isn't, well, there's a lot of weird in Revelation, can we agree? But this one actually kind of doesn't make sense to me because I've never seen an angel. Revelation 19.10, John gets this vision and here's what Revelation 19.10 says. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. Who's his feet? It's not God, it's an angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then the angel says, worship God. There is something so glorious and amazing about an angel that somehow if you saw it, you would be tempted to think that the angel is God, but his glory only pales in comparison to the true real God. Then you would think he learned. That's Revelation 19 verse 10. Then three chapters later in Revelation 22, 8 and 9, John does the exact same thing and the angel says to him again, stop it. Only worship God. And there's something about the glory that we just can't quite comprehend. But there is something far more dreadful than an unveiled angel. And it is the glory of God. And if you notice, notice in, in Luke chapter 2, what is shining all around them? It's the glory of God. 
This is a weird term for most. So what I want to do is I, I want to define it for you so you can understand what this is. And then I want to show you what scripture teaches about its impact on the human condition. So the glory of God, uh, is, glory literally is a Hebrew word, kabod. And kabod literally means a heavy weight. And originally this word referred to the heavy weight of a rich man's gold. And so the heavier the kabod, the heavier the weight, the more honor and respect that that person would be given culturally speaking. And so here's what you would find. You'd find a rich man, and if they had much kabod or much glory, usually they got more respect and admiration. They had more power and more influence everywhere they went. Well, apparently after Moses and other Jews experienced for the first time the glory of God, they took this word, meaning a heavy weight, and they assigned it to the glory of God. So that now God's glory, there was something about it that was so heavy emotionally, mentally, and spiritually that they couldn't even carry it. And they said, There's whatever, whatever this thing is, it is kabod. It's too heavy for us to pick up. And if a person found themselves in the presence of the kabod of God unprepared, it would crush them. They wouldn't even know what to do. They would be petrified. They would pass out. You know that feeling when you wake up in the morning and your eyes aren't adjusted and someone turns on the light and you're discombobulated and you're frustrated and then you yell, turn out the light for the love of God, right? And it hurts and you don't know where you are. Uh, in my bathroom, when, we go, when I wake up in the morning, there are two switches. The one that turns on the bright lights in front of me and the one that turns on the dim light behind me. And when I get up and I hit the wrong light, I panic. And I'm like, oh, and I freak out because it's too much. And my brain, it just overwhelms it. And imagine being found in the very presence of God, the glory of God shining around you, and you're not prepared for this. And it's, as people in scripture describe, it's sort of unlike any other human experience this side of heaven. And God, in his grace, turns the dimmer switch down. And so when even his glory, this side of heaven is seen, you're getting but a glimpse of the glory of God because in the fullness of his glory, it would crush you. So Kabod tells us the experience of it, what it feels like, but my question is, what is it exactly? And the only word that the New Testament gives for what this thing is, is light. And so the glory of God is light that emanates from God's very being. I want you to listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's verse 15 and 16. I want you to hear how the Apostle Paul describes being in the presence of God. He says this, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. How does he even know this? Because God gave him the privilege to see into the third heaven. First heaven is the clouds, second heaven the stars, third heaven where God dwells in Jewish theology. In fact, what's interesting, this is a little fun, like deep dive for you to go on someday. As Paul experiences and then begins to describe heaven, 
Many scholars think that he had a near-death experience because over the last 50 years, as Christians around the globe have near-death experiences, they actually describe almost identical things as what Paul experiences here. In fact, they all talk about an enormous, bright light that consumes you. Everything you are shines through you and exposes you totally. And in its presence, you feel warmth and love. Isn't that weird? In fact, they'll also describe lesser lights, and the best they can describe them as is some kind of angel. It's glorious, but it's not the same as the main one. Now, it's just an interesting thing, but that's how they are often described. And whatever this light is, here's what I know. The shepherds are fully and completely unprepared. They are not spiritually clean. It's like meeting God when you are not ready. It's like some of you, you're like, I'm pretty sure I don't want to die today because if I died today and I met God, I don't think I'm probably the most prepared. And if anybody probably did not feel the most prepared to be in the presence of God, it's going to be these shepherds. A couple things about God's light I think are just really intriguing. Number one, God's light is too heavy to carry. The human soul just cannot fathom being in its presence for very long, and that would be the glorious light of God on a dimmer switch. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 17. I'll put this on the screen as well, but um, it's a, a passage of scripture called the transfiguration. Um, you're going to see why it's called that in a moment. And In Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, Peter, James, and John, they get this privilege to see Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. By the way, Moses and Elijah have long been dead. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Let me just tell you what this means. It means the dimmer switch, it was turned up. And what God was doing in this moment is showing Peter, James, and John a glimpse into the actual glory that Jesus has. And as Jesus is on the earth, the dimmer switches all the way down. You're not seeing him in the fullness of his glory. But does that mean he's any less glorious? I've actually wondered in my brain, what do angels see when they see Jesus? <laughs> and so here's what we know, though, that the, the dimmer switch on his glory is turned down. And here it's turned all the way up. And here's what it says. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Mark has an account of this in Mark chapter 9, verse 3. Here's what Mark says. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Go back to Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. It says this, he was, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him. Everywhere God is in the glory of God or the presence of God is unveiled. What is emanating from God at all times? Light. And this light is unbearable for people. And so a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But verse six says this, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Number two, God's light seems to pervade matter. Again, I'm trying to find the best words this side of heaven to describe it. But the book of Revelation talks about how there is really nowhere you can go where the light that emanates from God's presence doesn't light up everything everywhere all the time. Revelation 21.3 says, the glory of God, talking about the new earth, gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By the way, who's the lamb? His name is 
Jesus, and there is something emanating from Jesus. It is this bright, pervasive light that fills the entire globe, not just the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 22, it actually gives us a glimpse into Jesus sitting on his throne. And here's what it says. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so the Lamb is there and the light is emanating. And I've never ever thought to describe water as bright, but I've never seen this kind of light, glory, emanating through, the actual, uh, through an actual river. And he's like, it's like bright crystal. Because everywhere God goes, light is emanating from him. Number three, God's light has, again, I'm trying to find the best like human terms to use for this, ongoing radiation-like effects. Moses had spent uh, quite a bit of time one-on-one with God, and let's be really clear, was the glory of God veiled or dimmed to a degree when he was one-on-one with Moses? The answer is absolutely. So it says this in Exodus 34, 29, Moses came down from Mount Sinai. Moses did not know the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and guess what? They were afraid to come near him. I mean, even the reflection of the glory of God, if you were unprepared, is petrifying to the human soul. We're not done. Scripture has quite a bit to say about the glory of God. God's light kills, if not veiled. And we see this over and over again. Sinful man in the presence of the glory of God cannot stand. So Moses, realizing there's more there Moses, having spent a considerable amount of time with Jesus, or with, with, sorry, with God, probably Jesus, who knows, before he was born, says, I think there's more there. Show me your glory. Show me your kabod. I'm getting like the dimmed version of this. And here's, here's what God says. You cannot see my face, Exodus 33. You can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And it's interesting, as God even describes the glory or the light that emanates from him, it will kill you, and the the epicenter of it is flowing from his face. And so the best Moses can get is a like a a covered up, dimmed version of the back of the glory of God, while the glory of God apparently goes this way, he gets to see just the back of it. Let's come back to Luke chapter 2, verse 9. The angel and an angel of the Lord appeared to them And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with mega fear. Why are they afraid? They were unforgiven sinners in the presence of the glory of God. And it was only the grace of God that the glory of God did not destroy them in their place. But in that moment, they were afraid because they knew its power. I think it's hilarious 
There's a song. I, I don't mind singing about the glory of God and we see the glory of God because we see it dimmed and veiled and all that stuff. None of that bothers me. But there's a song, I can't remember it, back in the 90s. And, and one of the lines was, Lord, let your glory fall. And I remember sitting in a, it was a university worship thing. And this worship leader gets up and says, God, we want to see the fullness of your glory here and now. I laughed out loud and I wanted to say, you'd be dead. <laughs> then you'd see it. <laughs> uh, I want to share with you two big so what's that we learn from the shepherds. Number one. Jesus is everyone's God. Verse 10 says this, the angel said to them, fear not. Isn't that, isn't that really good news to hear when the glory of God is shining around you? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And here's what I want to focus on. For all the people. And I guarantee you, if you had like a one-on-one -on -one heart conversation with one of these shepherds, if you could get past the, the hard exterior and, and they were just really, really safe and honest, if you were to ask them, do you, do you think you could be forgiven? When you, when you die, do you, do you think there's a chance you could get in? They would probably say, I, I, I don't know. I'm, why would I be allowed into heaven when I'm not even allowed in the temple? And I think this phrase probably just landed in their hearts in a really, I think, special way. Um, depends on who brings the gospel to you, but if you're from a different country and somebody from a different ethnicity brings you the gospel, um, oftentimes throughout the history of evangelism globally, um, people often think that if someone from a different skin color brings you the gospel, then it's the, the white man's religion or the black man's religion or the Jewish man's religion or something of the sorts. And what we find here is that Jesus is not any man's religion. He is every person's God. Now, you might worship a false God and not realize it, but that God doesn't exist. There's actually only one God. His name is Jesus. That is it. That's it, period. Father, Son, Spirit. Like one God, three persons done. No other gods exist. We know this as Christians. But many people don't realize that he literally is everyone's God. He is everyone's maker. There are no other gods. He's it. That's all there is. And he offers forgiveness to anybody who wants it. He is a good, merciful God who offers forgiveness and salvation. And what other God of any other religion would become and take on flesh, lay aside his glory and his privileges, the use of all of his authority, and let his creation kill him so that he could actually pay the price for your sins that you could never pay. You'll never find another religion who does this, by the way. It doesn't exist. And then offers it free. Cost him everything. Cost you nothing. You will, you'll never see anything like this anywhere. What I, what I love is as you start reading through the Gospels, initially, here's what you find. You find that Jesus comes for and is offering the kingdom of God and salvation and forgiveness to the poor, to the outcasts, to people like the Magi, to the shepherds, and to girls like Mary. You see these people, and he's like, I am for you. But what I love as you read through the Gospels, it's almost like there's no kind of person left untouched that Jesus does not give uh, uh, salvation and forgiveness, or at least offer it to. 
I think about um, the rich. He ate and drank with the rich. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and rich people could come to Jesus. People from other faiths were welcome to abandon their former religion and come to trust and worship Jesus Christ alone. We think about the Magi alone. I mean, these are very wealthy men from a different country with a completely different faith system, and this Jesus offers them to set that aside and to become followers of Jesus. Romans, especially in the military throughout the Gospels, are meeting Jesus and believing in him, and they worship different gods. I mean, they are polytheists through and through, and he offers them to put that aside and says, even you, you've been worshiping false gods your entire life. You're invited to come to me and to trust in Jesus The immoral, these are the kind of people that no Jewish rabbi would even touch. Loose women followed him and were forgiven. Look at the story and history of Mary Magdalene. This woman should never, ever, in any other religion ever, have been this close to their spiritual leader, let alone offered forgiveness and redemption and a name in one of their holy books. Yes, she does. Corrupt men, tax collectors, stealing, breaking the law offered salvation and offered to follow Jesus. Religious hypocrites are offered the opportunity to follow Jesus. People like the shepherds, unspiritual, distant from God, offered forgiveness and redemption to follow Jesus. I mean, it is striking. The shepherds are the tip of the iceberg of the kind of people that you would not expect the God of this universe to welcome in and offer forgiveness and redemption. A second so what might feel like it is contradicting the first, but I don't think it is. Fear him until you trust him. In scripture, fear can mean a couple different things. Let me describe for you a few. If you're a follower of God, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, to fear God means to revere and respect him. And so you should fear him. That's one of the ways the word fear is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Revere and respect him. If you are a believer in Jesus and you are willingly disobeying God's word and you know it, fear means you should be very scared of his impending discipline. Like be afraid. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Amen? Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas in this room. A father who does not discipline does not love their child. And so if you know you are in willing disobedience to fear God in that moment, that moment is to actually be afraid of the disciplinary hand of God. But if you have rejected Jesus or you have yet to trust in Christ, because there's many who have, who have never said, I reject Jesus. They've never actually just made the decision to personally trust him or they're still trying to figure out who he is. It means you should be petrified of his judgment should you die. I want to read you two scriptures, and I think they have so much weight to them. Hebrews 10.31, speaking of those who die not having trusted in Jesus, says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Romans eleven twenty two says this, note then, there's two sides to God, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, meaning you have rejected Jesus, but God's kindness to you, speaking to Christians who have trusted in Jesus and persevered to the end. 
And so it's interesting because before your death, Jesus is welcoming everybody. There is no single human on the planet who if they come to Jesus, he is gonna turn away. But then the book of Hebrews also says it is appointed that man die once and then face judgment. So even one of the scary things, if you're in this room, you might be watching online, you might listen to a podcast 10 years down the road of this actual sermon, who knows? If you hear this, if you're here, there's now this increased level of accountability before God because you know and you have heard that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, that he was raised from the dead to prove that he wasn't just another dead Jewish guy who was killed by Rome, and that he's coming back again, and that salvation today has been offered to you freely, not because you're accruing a bunch of good works or because you're better than somebody else, but because God loves you and knows you could have never done it on your own, and he's offering this to you free today. That's amazing. And so I want to come back to this, so what? Fear him until you trust him. And my desire is honestly not that the fear of hell would primarily lead you to trust in Jesus, but that the kindness of God extending his hand to you, what he's been willing to do for you would draw you to love him and to trust in him and to take his escape boat, to take his way out, which is through faith in Jesus. I want each of you to experience the words of verse 10, fear not For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. When sinners like the shepherds hear that Jesus is for them, their response is, this is really good news. Do you mean that we can be forgiven? And then their reaction is great joy. Now, I I saved my favorite part of the shepherd's um, story until the very end, and I'll share that with you now. Uh, These shepherds were almost certainly hired by the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Bethlehem, where they were, it's about a six-mile distance. They lived in the entire region. I think that's why the text goes out of its way to let you know they were in that region, because the shepherds of that region had a job. They were hired by the temple for a specific reason, to raise, protect, evaluate for purity, and deliver the firstborn sheep for temple sacrifice. Right outside of Bethlehem, there was a tower, and this tower is where some of them would live and where the sheep would go, and in this tower was the place where the sheep were prepared and they were brought for temple sacrifice just a couple miles away. And the shepherds had a really specific job before they would bring any of these sheep for sacrifice. Quality control. They would check every lamb to make sure it was pure for sacrifice. And then after examination, the firstborn lambs would be wrapped up in old priestly garments and laid in a manger until they settled down. Now, of all the people that God could have said, here's what to look for, who does he say it to? 
He says it to the shepherds. And I want you to listen to how their story ends in light of what they do, in light of who they are. The angel says, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Messiah, the Lord, your God. And this will be a sign for you. What should we look for? You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Are you putting it together? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God, saying, I just wonder if they were freaked out, if they like fell back on their rears, I don't know. But suddenly... <laughs> Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord made known to us. And I love this line. They went with haste. They ran. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Let's pray together. Father, I want to just say thank you for your intentionality. I think about the shepherd's testimony. We were just rugged, unclean men, far from God, distant spiritually, kicked out of church, not allowed to worship. And God met me in the fields, brought me to Jesus, and showed me who he really was. God, so many of us in this room have a similar story, just different details. We are sinners. We were living as if we are our own God, following the winds of culture or our heart. And you intervened and you showed us the glory of Jesus. And you saved us and you forgave us our sins. God, I know there are some in this room who have yet to trust in Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would show up and you would meet them and you would show them the glory of Jesus and they would trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins and that they would join with the billions of Christians who have gone before us with the same story. I was a sinner. I trusted in Jesus and he forgave my sins. And I walk with him and follow him as imperfect as I am. Father, what a gift you have given to these shepherds and what a gift you have given to every single one of us. And so, Father, it is our delight as your followers to sing to you and to bring honor and glory to your name, to talk about you, to celebrate what you have done, to celebrate with our family and to point people to the only hope of, of the universe, and that is Jesus Christ. We love you, and I am thankful for our worship leaders that are about to come up, and they're gonna lead us in worship. Our young kids, we love you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.